You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie and in the cave with me tonight, as always, is Stuart Richards. Hello there. Returning, we have Paul Anthony Nelson. Hello there. And we have a very special guest on the cave tonight, is Flick Ford. It's her first time on Plato's Cave. Um, Felicity is a PhD candidate in, in Screen and Cultural Studies at the University of Melbourne. She is also a project coordinator at the Graduate Student Association and secretary for the wonderful Melbourne Cinematheque. So welcome, Flick. Ah, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I just really quickly wanted to mention before we get things kicked off on the show that sadly we have just heard that Tab Hunter has passed away, oh. who was the stunning 1950s and 60s heartthrob and, of course, worked with mm. the wonderful John Waters in Polyester and then worked with Divide again, I think, in Lust in the Dust. So I think that has just been announced. He, I think he was about 86, but he's an icon, and that's really sad to hear that he's passed away. And the documentary, Tab Hunter Confidential, is That was really great. excellent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Excellent doco. When was it? That was on a queer film ago. festival a couple yeah. of years ago? A few years ago. Two, mm. three, two, three years ago at the queer yeah. film festival. But, yeah. yes, Tab Hunter Confidential is excellent, so watch it if you haven't seen it. Um, on tonight's show, we are going to be discussing the long-awaited return of cult cinema's dynamic duo, Tommy Wiseau and Greg, <laughs> <laughs> and Greg Sistero in Best Friends. We're also going to be looking at the events leading up to the creation of one of history's most beloved literary tales, Frankenstein with the Bible. Pick Mary Shelley. But first, we are going to be fo- uh, looking at a doco that focuses on one of the most important women of Australian cinema, Jill Bil- Bilcock, in Jill Bilcock Dancing the Invisible. Um, so this doco focuses on her life and work. She's Academy Award-nominated film editor. Uh, her She has edited iconic Australian films such as Strictly Ballroom, Muriel's Wedding, Moulin Rouge, Red Dog, The Dressmaker, and she has an unmistakable look. So I think her inventiveness kind of took over with her editing choices in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, and it changed the way that modern cinema looked to a degree. Um, so what did we all think of Jill Bilcock dancing the invisible? Stewie? Me. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a really lovely documentary that really took us through major moments in Australian cinema, which I did enjoy. Uh, it was a really good overview of major moments in Australian film. She's really personable. Uh, I think if you're going to make a documentary where the subject is so heavily involved in interviews, you kind of want them to be likeable, I think. And <laughs> she's really likeable, uh, which, I, which is fantastic. I wanted a little bit more about the art of editing, though, in the film. Uh, there are a few moments when I guess sort of editing terms get used, jump cuts, uh, match on action, and they're used in passing and... I'm not sure how accessible the film is when these terms get used in passing and not really explained. Yeah, sure. You know, it's like we may know what that means, mm. but to a general audience perhaps they don't. Because yeah. there's the, the there's the scene they're talking about in Queen Mary, uh, sorry, Elizabeth with the character Queen Mary, who's looking around the room and she's lost her mind and, and they're talking about how uh, the viewpoints between the characters aren't meeting and it's discussed really quickly 
And I think... I think if the film had of a sort of explored and unpacked with a little bit more detail, almost like a video essay, perhaps, I think that would have made it a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, more sort of accessible and and easier to, to get. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I agree. I I did find it refreshing that it had some of that. Um, various moments, looking at moments from Elizabeth, looking at mm-hmm. moments from. Uh, Romeo and Juliet and and Strictly Ballroom. I loved the tidbit about her operating B camera. On oh my Strictly god, Ballroom. so did I. There was um, just to quickly explain that she was doing some B roll stuff because she had in her head how she wanted Strictly Ballroom to look, and it was Baz Luhrmann's first film, um, so he wasn't you know achieving those cuts that she wanted. Yeah. Yeah, just shooting little interstitials and cutaways and, mm. and things because she saw what Baz was shooting and she knew exactly what gaps would make that all match. And that was really, really great. And something I've never actually heard of an editor doing. No. Who isn't a director. Because so. it seems like she's really heavily involved in on set all the time with, you know, pretty much everything that she's doing. Yeah. Mm. I kind of disagree slightly, though, because I thought that... Um, a lot of the times it doesn't matter so much that you don't know the terms because it's more a felt experience. And I got really actually emotional re-watching those scenes and remembering watching those films from my child, or some of them from my childhood. And I was kind of thinking all of the movement and the pace, it's felt rather than needs to necessarily be have a, have a term for it to know exactly what the, the you know was going on. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Flick. The, when they showed the opening sequence to Romeo and Juliet, that is so riveting and thrilling and I really vividly remember the first time I ever saw that and I was Same. 13 years old and it is a com- total emotional experience. So, yeah, what you're saying there really sort of rings true. And Japanese story. The, that's the death scene in Japanese sco- mm. story uh, where sort of at the lake and the length of the shots mm. and the power of that I think is is really something. I really like that moment. I, I, I just think, I know, the, the art of the editing and how it's crafted and what she's actually doing, I thought could have been explained a little bit more, mm-hmm. I think. I, I, so, so good. Oh, and I was going to say, it was interesting, just as a side with Japanese story, I actually didn't like that film the first time <laughs> I saw it. Yeah. And also <laughs> I remember seeing Head On around the same time or I think I was just getting into Australian cinema at the time and it it ga- kind of gave me this appreciation of of the thought that had gone into the timing and the framing and and it, yeah I thought that was really just as an aside I thought that mm. was a really powerful way to be like to, it prompted me to revisit those films so it has prompted mm. me to revisit them yeah I just kind of felt that it would be a, a, a bit of a you know a love fest and it was and it was kind of like how she got here and but the fact that they did actually delve into some of the technical aspects mm. of some of those was really refreshing and, and kind of helped save the film for me also I did kind of like how the opening uh, referred to her openings and the ending referred yeah. to her endings. Yeah, yeah. And and even, I think even the Japanese story anecdote was around the midpoint. Yep. Yeah. Like, yeah. I thought that was really clever. That was really good. Because it really, it's a pretty difficult task editing, being the person editing this film <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> on Jill Billcock. <laughs> you know what I particularly enjoyed about this doco was it really reminded me of the fact that filmmaking is so collaborative. We mm. often go, okay, there's a director, there's a screenwriter and that's it. But it, there's so many people involved in that final product, you know, and is reliant on so many people's involvement. And I love that kind of archival footage of when I think they were editing Romeo and Juliet, I yeah, think, in Brunswick, the- which was exciting. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, when they had that archival footage of them all sitting around her home drinking cups of tea and just this being so many people there involved with every little thing and them talking about the new editing technology they use for that film and just that filmmaking is a big collaboration and it is about finding, I guess, a big family at the end of that, which I've just found really heartwarming in Stockholm. Yep, Flick. Um, oh, I was just going to say I loved that they kind of, on following with that, they the way in which she sort of extends that collaboration to upcoming and completely unknown filmmakers. There's, mm. a, there's a bit towards the end when she's talking about a new documentary project. I think it was a documentary film from memory um, with complete unknown, um, this new filmmaker. I think he was uh, very young, like 18 or early He's 21, 21. from Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that that just shows her generosity. Like she's a very big name in the film industry. And then to, for her, like you just see her passion around film and also supporting and nurturing the film industry. I thought it was really beautiful. Mm, it's really important. I, I also think that's a really important point, identifying the sort of the collaborative nature of mm. film. Because if we're in Australian history, we often mainly focus on these sort of big male auteurs and if we're just focusing on these big male auteurs we obscure the collaborative nature of these films and usually we obscure the the role a lot of women in lead creative roles have actually done so I think it's a really kind of feminist act to sort of identify all of these other people that are so, so instrumental in the the works that we have made mm. and also oh sorry Let's just go. to say um a lot of women editors like there's a huge tradition mm. of that you know Jaws um um, Holland Drive. Uh, <laughs> trying to think of them after top of my head, but they're all <laughs> yeah. female editors. Yeah. There's a huge history of that. Well, Tarantino and, and Scorsese. Yeah, and the yeah. whole idea of invisibility, like mm. the title yeah. refers to, is invisible mm. work that is done there. Mm. Yeah, I also really enjoyed her relationship with Richard Lowenstein, and I, I like that there's a lot of this kind of stuff with Melbourne film and how it all started out, and it's got a very punk background. Yeah. I love that, and um, I loved all the kind of, you know, their sweeping shots of dogs in space and how that what you were saying before, Flick, that she did get elevated to kind of a higher status because of, you know, him and him going, you know, I want you to do this film, I want it to, you know, sort of look your way, which I think was really, you know, mm. important. And also made me sad, as it does every day, that she left Team Lerman because Baz Lerman and Catherine Martin's films were always better when she was editing them. What was the yeah. last one that she edited for them? Moulin Rouge. She, yep. So she did the Red Curtain trilogy and then Australia and, and Gatsby. Other and that yeah. was the Academy Award nomination, wasn't it? Mm. Moulin Rouge. Yeah. I, I've got to say I haven't seen any Baz Luhrmann since the end of the Red Carpet <laughs> trilogy, to be honest. And I, I love them. I yeah, think they're great. Right. And it is here that, that, once again, the opening sequence to Moulin Rouge is totally, like, thrilling to watch. That's like, so great. And the sequence in this where they went through about how many different opening sequences she created creative for that was just phenomenal. I love that she's like doesn't care about how much everything costs in the background. She's just like, oh yeah, I know that helicopter cost you this amount of money, but we're going to cut it because it doesn't work. Like she, she's really, yeah. But it's such a cool point it. of view. It's that whole, you know, somebody has to make the call and go and not just attach the cost and the pressure of that and just step away and go, no, that doesn't work. We yeah. don't need it. Um, also, just on a weird personal note, mm. they have a shot that, of a masterclass that she's doing at Acme speaking to James Hewison and literally if they'd panned the camera a cut couple of inches left, you would have seen me there. You were there. I was there. <laughs> well, Jill Billcock Dancing the Invisible is screening now at Nova. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. So next up... 
the much anticipated return of Greg and Tommy. <laughs> so, <laughs> we such could, anticipation. <laughs> should, I should say the name of the film, which is Best Friends Volume One. So, brace yourself, a second volume will be coming. <laughs> so, <laughs> it is based on the true life anecdotes sourced from Greg and Tommy's two decades of shared experiences. Best Friends is a unique two volume cinematic saga that interweaves mystery, intrigue, and more. Uh, it also has a few dark laughs in there. So if you're unfamiliar with Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sistero f- uh, from The Room, you may you may know them from The Disaster Artist, the biopic pick that um, was released, I think, late last year with James Franco and Dave Franco. Um, what are our thoughts on Best Friends Volume 1? Flick, do you want to kick oh. this one off? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to upset a lot of Room fans because I can understand. I, was, I just went and saw it at Nova and uh, there's a lot of people who were enjoying it immensely and I feel like they probably won't even listen to reviews on it because they've probably already decided they'll love it. Uh, but... I left the cinema. <laughs> I was like, nah, I get the gist of it. I'm out. <laughs> I, um, yeah. I. How long did yeah. you last? I, I put in a good innings. I lasted um, 70 minutes. <laughs> exactly. But the end was so weird. Yeah. The okay, final not, shot is everything. I'm not oh, going to really? give away okay. spoilers. <laughs> I was a bit worried about time and I was like, yeah, I'd prefer to... <laughs> Have time for a while. It's all it's a long film. It goes for almost two hours. <laughs> it, does. it is long. It is. Yeah. And yeah. It's, there's going to be another two hours to it. Yeah. I actually was hoping that I, I saw that it was volume one and two, and I was like, oh, I think because I, I didn't see the volume one on the on the poster, and I was like, oh, I'm sure that they've just rolled it in to to one for the. <laughs> but uh, obviously not. I mean, like I think I can understand. Like the fan, to be honest, like consensus from the crowd was that they loved it. There was, like, lots of people laughing during it. They were really getting into it. And there were bits that I liked, but on the whole I was just a bit, like... I thought there was actually... I didn't mind... I quite liked The Disaster Artist and I got really into that and I thought there was a lot of um, humanity in that and I just felt like with this time around it just... the the mood was off and I just was like, I feel like the tone kept switching and it couldn't decide whether it was making fun or like trying to replicate that same bad, (laughs) bad filmness or that it was trying to be a good, meaningful film. So I I think that's what I didn't like about it overall. So I tried, I was really important for me to replicate the viewing experience of The Room. So I went along to a late night screening at Nova with a bag of wine and we had lots of fun. A bag of wine. And a bag of wine. <laughs> um, and, I thought it was re- and so I was really, really important to try to recreate that viewing experience <laughs> for Best Friends so I can get into a good reviewing headspace. So we had just finished watching uh, the grand finale of Drag Race. Um, Yay, Aquaria. (laughs) Uh, Eureka. Eureka was robbed. (laughs) Team Aquaria. Dead butterflies everywhere. (laughs) And a few empty bottles of wine and and gin. And and, uh, there was about five of us there watching it and we were so excited to see this film. And the first half an hour I think is great. I think it is bonkers. It's terrible. uh, And there are so many wonderful moments like... Uh, Tommy Wiseau's, uh, he obviously is a, um, is a morgue. A pr- mortician. A, a mortician, that's it, a mortician. And he has this rolling gait. <laughs> and the number, <laughs> the number for his business is on the inside of the gate facing away <laughs> from the public. 
And we just kept on seeing that. I was like, what purpose does that serve? No one can see your phone number. There's actually like a bit where I was like thinking they were going for this really subtle bit where, you know, you start to see the bottom um, of like the slogan for the business. And I was like, oh, actually, that's like surprisingly subtle. And then, no, no, no. <laughs> they go for like a close up on it and then make sure you capture it all. I was like, oh, God. You know, one thing I really liked about the opening of it was so Greg Sestero's character, who is homeless at the start of the film. He's got some blood on his shirt and he's got this white shirt on him. <laughs> got some blood on it, but the the rest of the shirt's pristine. Yeah. <laughs> You're not homeless. Your shirt is so white. Also, the shaving scene. I'm sorry, but I, I like. Okay, I don't have a beard, so I don't know what it's like. But I was watching it, being like, has he shaved? He suddenly like you look. There's a whole sequence where he's shaving closely, and then he's still he's got, got like this five, five o'clock shadow. <laughs> and. He has these scars on his face that every different scene, the scars have moved. (laughs) Sometimes they start to get better, then the next scene, they're really bad again, which I really love. But as I said before, it's really long. And so I think I'd say about 70 minutes. We we noticed that we stopped laughing. Um, It got really boring. And that kind of terrible sort of badness which is hilarious got um got it just got dull um and up until that final really wacky sequence (laughs) where it's like we have literally no idea what's going on in the kind of the final five minutes uh but by that point we were we were done we were we, we had checked out i think so i think the first half of the film is fantastic um, I think it's really funny and this uh, the director achieves that aesthetic which uh, Tommy Wiseau got for the room. But it, uh, after a while it just... It's a little bit contrived, I thought. I really loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I went into this thinking that I, I didn't have high expectations. I am a fan of the room. I'm not a huge crazy fan of it, but I enjoy it. It's fun. And I went into this thinking, okay, they're just going to be trying to replicate the room. It's going to be totally shitty. But um, I thought it was hilarious. I loved it. I loved the batshit crazy story that he was taking teeth out of dead bodies and that's how they were getting their riches is that they were selling gold teeth from dead bodies. Like, I just, it's like, it's exactly, it was and this, this mask that was meant to look like Greg's stereo, it just looked like Michael Myers. <laughs> I'm so glad they put, they explained that it was meant to be him because I was I, like, I known why? <laughs> I loved it. I loved. I loved it so much. I um, love that he was a crazy mortician. Um, just, I watched it by myself and just sat there giggling to myself <laughs> the entire time. I also thought it was really interesting how they started to throw in these things. I noticed in the opening shot of the morgue, it wasn't the Black Dahlia. There was a photo in the background of a old, an old-looking photo of a woman hacked up, like the Black Dahlia. Oh, I thought, well, that looks like a Black Dahlia, but it's not her. And then they go on, off on this tangent with this woman, Elizabeth, that's been hacked up. And for those of you, sorry, that are listen, listening and maybe don't know who the Black Dahlia is, it was this woman called Elizabeth Short that um, was killed in LA in the 1920s or 30s, I think. Um, and her murder is infamous because of the really gruesome damage to her body. Um 
So, yeah, they keep going on about Elizabeth and, I, you know, it's clearly set in LA. I think, oh, they're going to go off on this Black Dahlia tangent and then just nothing happens. They even lift up the picture and start talking about it a bit and then there's nothing. And then all these, there's shots to Sunset Boulevard and all, yeah, it was really interesting how they brought in all this really sort of really LA-centric stuff that just went nowhere with it. Maybe they're saving it for part two. That's what I was thinking because I thought, oh, this is going to become this whole big Black Dahlia thing and I'm fingers crossed that part two is going to be. That. Did you know that they didn't reveal that at the premiere screening? They just had it as best friends and screened it. I think it was at the Prince Charles Cinema in London. And then as it fades down and then fades up, chapter <laughs> coming, coming soon, chapter two. And apparently the audience went nuts. Are <laughs> <laughs> they crying or laughing? <laughs> well, we went nuts as well because when we were watching it, we had no idea it was volume one. And so... <laughs> Why would you? No. <laughs> as with then this... And then that that whack. I'm not sure if it's a dream sequence or if it's just a. Uh, I mean, just the wacky sequence at the end. I had no idea what we're going on, and then Volume <laughs> Two coming soon comes up, and it's like no. <laughs> I, I like that they have based it on their true life stories that they have shared together. Where <laughs> um, I saw Greg Cicero talking about how he was going for a ride one day with Tommy Wiseau, and uh, Tommy thought legitimately thought that he was going, yes. Greg was going to kill him for whatever reason, <laughs> had it in his head. I think you were saying maybe he's a cokehead. You know, could, could be that. Could be. Maybe. <laughs> what well, makes several scenes, it genuinely looks like Tommy has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> he doesn't know the lines and he's just bumbling around set trying not to bump into things and everyone else in the scene is, are trying to get the script back on track. <laughs> Um, to get to the end of the scene. That's genuinely what it feels like. They do, the characters at one point do acknowledge his sort of strange behaviour, though, like the gold tooth dealer man. <laughs> I don't know what, a, what his professional title is. Um, but anyway, he, he kind of addresses it directly, though. He's just like, what is this guy like? What are you on? And yeah. I kind of liked that interaction, actually, because it's like... Yeah, we're just so used to Tommy that it's just like, oh, he's just being Tommy. The gold chick dealer that came in with his two hot yeah. babes. <laughs> I, I didn't feel like they were trying to recreate the room. It, it felt different to me. I still really enjoyed it, but it, feel, it felt really different. Clearly it had a different director, different writer. Um, they just let Tommy act in this one, you know, <laughs> which he did brilliantly. No. I, I get the feeling he's not shy at improvising. Like, I get the feeling he'd have a script going, no, I think I know what to say here. Let me run with it and see what I can do with it. And and, and just go off on his own thing. Yeah. And you've met Mark. Oh, Greg. Greg. My, my friend. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had, an, I had an encounter. I think it was, he was doing a Q&A at Cinema Nova a couple of weeks ago and I was there seeing Foxtrot and I saw him standing by himself out the front of the cinema waiting to go in and because his face was really familiar, I just genuinely thought he was my friend and I went, up and went hey, how are you going? Like that. And he sort of looked at me and went, oh, hi, and then I thought, oh, fuck, that's the guy from the room. <laughs> Then I just tried to play it cool and went, ah, oh, so you're going in for your screening, are you? <laughs> Enjoy it. And off I went. <laughs> Smooth. Yeah, I like that uh, my story concerning Greg is also at Cinema Nova, <laughs> Nova Bar precisely. And I was um, I was late for the screening of Disaster Artists where he was also doing a Q&A and I was uh, looking through Google images of Greg on my phone <laughs> and I have a very big phone and he came up and he was about a metre away from me. I looked up and I was like, oh, <laughs> do I look like a creepy stalker? Did he say anything to you? 
Uh, he smiled, but I was like, just too embarrassed. To yeah, <laughs> I think I walked off. Also, it made me realise I was super late for the film. So, yeah. <laughs> Does, it doesn't seem like the kind of guy who'd be too unhappy with people looking at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but um, so best friends or best fiends, depending on how you want to look at it. That's a terrible title. <laughs> I heard that that was Tommy um, was always doing. Was the title? <laughs> so I so I heard that they he'd put it in as kind of a working title, and then he was like, "No, leave it, leave it. That's how it has to be." Makes no sense. <laughs> so, it's just so as someone that hasn't seen the entire film, mm-hmm. I, I said a little bit. I think it's a theme here. Uh, um, <laughs> the <laughs> is does anyone though like from the trailer? I kind of got the sense that this was Sistero wanting to possibly put him and Tommy in a decent movie? Like their attempt to kind of make a good film? <laughs> no. no. You don't get the sense no. that... Or, or that, that was a mission that failed? Or do you think... No, I, I, don't think I, I don't think they would have made a film about um, <laughs> selling cold teeth <laughs> from dead bodies if that was the case. <laughs> if they were trying to make a serious film. But I, I, I loved it. I, I had such a fun time watching there bits, it. There are bits that are beautifully shot, though. I mean, like, yeah, maybe, were, were maybe you could argue yeah. that they're trying for some artistry mm. there. And a, and a lot less CGI yeah. <laughs> than the room. Yeah. So. yeah, For sure. Well, Best Friends is screening now at Cinema Nova. Three Triple R. Our next film that we are looking at this evening is the biopic of Mary Shelley, also titled Mary Shelley. Um, So (laughs) she will be forever remembered as a writer who gave the world Frankenstein. But the real-life story of Mary Shelley and the creation of her immortal monster is nearly as fantastical as her fiction. Raised by her renowned philosopher father in 18th century London, Mary Wollstonecroft Godwin, played by Al Fanning, is a teenage dreamer determined to make her mark on the world when she meets the dashing and brilliant poet Percy Shelley. So begins a torrid bohemian love affair marked by both passion and personal tragedy that will transform Mary and fuel the the writing of her gothic masterwork. Okay, Paul, what did you think of Mary Shelley? Hmm, it's interesting little recap there because that sounds a lot more like the Wikipedia page or the actual story than it did this film. I've got to say, this is the worst film I've seen in 2018 so far. I thought it was dreary, I'm going to drop it, fucking miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I have seen British social realist dramas about domestic violence that have more joy in them than this film. Like... It was a tr- like I, it's like what? Where's the rush of inspiration? Where's the rush of creativity? Where's the like the and plus my partner um, went through a massive Mary Shelley phase when she was younger and like inhaled everything she could on Mary Shelley and she's sitting next to me going, "This is bullshit. This is bull. I want to punch <laughs> this film in the face." <laughs> it's like the, like the, and like she's gesturing at me. They were friends. They were encouraging. It's like. Shh, shh, <laughs> I was like, we're in a cinema. <laughs> um, it was just like it made me want to watch. The, the the kindest thing I can say about this film is it made me want to watch Ken Russell's Gothic again. Mm. And it's just like it just it boils every. It just seemed like revisionist history to fit an agenda that just boiled everything down to look how mean all these men are being to me. And it's like, and it was, which it wasn't like that at all. Like they were incredible. Like they're actually they're a competitive but supportive community. 
Byron and Shelley and Shelley mm. and, and Godwin and, and um, yeah, and it just... Uh, I, and it was dreary to look at, and it was so disappointing because Haifa El Mansour, who directed this, mm. directed Wadster a few mm. years ago, which is a beautiful yeah. movie. And Wadster is so full of life, and so it was one of those films where every character seemed to kind of spin off a story by themselves. Like I kept wanting to see the other movies involving them. Mm. And this is the complete opposite. I could not give a shit about anyone involved. Al <laughs> 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 uh, Fanning. I mean, I've liked Al Fanning and other things. Like I'm. I'm a card-carrying Neon Demon fan. So am I, so am yes. I. I thought she was excellent in that. And, and I thought she was way out of her depth here. I just Really? Yeah. I thought none of this none of this movie worked for me at all. I thought it was atrocious. I, I love Elle Fanning so much and I thought she was the only thing good about it. Or like, only thing good in this film. Wait, that's a weird sentence. I thought she was the only thing good in this film. <laughs> uh, she was just, yeah, I, I, I loved the fact that she kind of held it together and she was like the emotional heart of the film. And I, I, I mean, I don't actually know that much about Mary Shelley and it was kind of, um, yeah, maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe need to, <laughs> haven't learned anything from the film. <laughs> I'm not sure. But um, I, I really thought that she um, expressed that sort of creative um, urge and that sort of um, I thought the, the relationship with her father was really beautiful and I liked a lot of I thought her performance really held together basically like she she was able to conjure this idea of of grief in a very short amount of time like there wasn't much time given to <laughs> a child <laughs> I don't know what did you think yeah was I uh, I wanted more of Belle Powley the, the the actress that plays her friend Claire Claremont yeah Claire yeah. Claremont I I mean you mentioned uh, Paul that in Wadja we get all of these other characters that are genuinely interesting and we want to sort of more from we want more from them as well but here I just like get rid of everyone <laughs> and just let's focus on Belle Powley because <laughs> she's such a great actress uh, I was and not I, a fan of her oh really <laughs> yeah <laughs> I just I, the way she moves her face and the way she moves about the set I just found more engaging than uh, just uh, Mer- the um, Elle Fanning's just there's something listless about her that just really drove me nuts uh, I found the film incredibly sexless um, and yeah for something that's meant to be quite bohemian and mm. sexy it wasn't just, very sexy was it no and because there because I I thought this was the case that there was sort of a queer element to their kind of circle circle and and then when I watched it, there's the kiss between uh, Byron and Shelley. Which wasn't scripted, by the way. That was really? an improv thing, yeah. <gasps> they had to sneak that one yeah, through. Like Lest there be yeah. any joy whatsoever in yeah. this that's most, That was one of the most interesting moments in the yeah. film because I was like that, because it was it was so dull up until that point and then there's kisses like, oh, this might go somewhere now. No. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Back to dull. And, but, I mean... <laughs> The, the the subject matter is so interesting. I mean, we have Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein and all of the the influences of her disposition that kind of go into the writing of this text and that ghost story competition that they had, that they sort of gave each other, is so genuinely interesting and could have gone somewhere interesting and that could have really structured the narrative in a, in, in a way that's not fucking dull mm. and they mm. just nothing happened like it just it like it, it Frankenstein was written because of a heartbroken teenage girl mm-hmm. like that's which I think really underdoes the greatness of that novel 
I'll go. Her. I think it's offensive. I think it's offensive to Mary Shelley. It's offensive yeah. to Frankenstein to boil it down to something so reductive just because mm. you want to prove your agenda. It's just I loved it. No, I didn't. <laughs> 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 I, I, I didn't like that. <laughs> oh boy. Um, no, I have to agree. I think it was for some. It was very dull for somebody that led such an amazing, incredible, interesting life. And I understand that you can't fit Mary Shelley's entire life into a film, and you're going to focus on a section of it. So why not be the lead up to Frankenstein? But yeah, it was it was pretty dull. What I I. Would have I was hoping to see was her interest in science and mm. why what you know that spark was there and they looked at it I think maybe twice for about two seconds and it was very briefly touched on but I I wanted to see how she a woman in this time period had an interest in science and where that came from and I am a fan of Mary Shelley and you know I do kind of know about her background and history but yeah it was totally very bland. Do you think it was like I was trying to work out what is the cause of the blandness because I, I completely agree. Mm. But I was thinking the structure seems really odd. Like it's just there's – I can't work out where the – not that it needs to have a climax, but I couldn't work out um, – yeah, it just seemed like an odd mm. pacing or structure to it. I tried to pin it down. Yeah, I, I think the real sadness is is because we have two storytellers, Mary Shelley and Haifa Al-Mansur, who are so interesting and – creative and innovative in how they tell their stories and the meaning they give their stories. And this film is so conventional. Mm. It's, it, there's a real kind of television aesthetic to it. Yeah, there really is. Yep. Yeah. It even ends with a snog in a bookshop, which is so un- oh, disconnected to that. real life. That was my most hated oh my bit. God. I rolled my eyes so much. I, like, missed I part of the film. I forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I terrible. think I saw my own brain. My eyes rolled back so far. Yeah, it is. It's a real shame because she is, Mary Shelley is such an important figure and her struggle to find a voice being a female in, you know, a world that is male-dominated and, you know, trying to get into that industry is still something that we struggle with all the time. So it's still a story that is important and that is relevant to today. But, yeah, it just didn't, didn't work on any level whatsoever. The score as well. I mean, there's cinematically, like, it's not there. No. I don't remember the score whatsoever, so Same. there you go. I always try to make an effort to listen to the score again, less than before the show, and I got three tracks in. I was like, I can't. Like, this is, it's genuinely dull. Like, mm. it's, Do you think, yeah, mm. it's like a safeness to it? Like, yeah. I, I think the whole film went mm. for that same safeness. Like, even, yeah, it's mm. just the whole, and even the shots and the colour grading for mm. it and every aspect is so safe. Were there even any sex scenes in it? Uh... Mm, no. no. I See, vaguely remember oh, one between her and, and Percy that's yeah. really lots of, you know, kneading of flesh. You oh, know, right. it's just, again, just shit. Just like you'd see on, like, late night television. Oh, no, oh God, this movie. I can't deal. I actually do remember, I'm getting flashbacks now. I do remember the sex scene, the very first one, and it was... Um, it just looked like it. Was, it just was, yeah, terrible. And, and then <laughs> they're like at the at the cottage. They all look like refugees from Twilight. They look like pale vampires <laughs> in Twilight. fancy shirts, all walking, lounging about. It's like, oh, this is yeah. So. The costumes that were, were there was. <laughs> It was it, it was just like they've raided the the wardrobe of Downton Abbey mm-hmm. or, or something, and it's just sort of the the leftovers. 
When did that, uh, the latest Dorian Gray film came come out? Was that like 2008 or something like that? It was pretty bad. It, rem- it was in that same kind of vein mm. of it should be good, but it's not. You've got really good subject matter, but it's just not going anywhere. Also, I'd love to see like uh, a period drama from that time that's not really dimly lit. Like yes. can you just mm. for once not go for like the blue the blue lighting. Yeah. <laughs> really yeah. Like just have some lighting in there yeah. at some point. Just some light. Yeah. <laughs> have some yeah. variance of mood. I mean <laughs> yeah. this is Yeah. But yeah. like I mean candlelight, like orange glows. Mm. Yeah, that could be great. No. Look at Barry no. Lyndon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what was um, the Sophie Sophia Coppola film? Um, Marie Antoinette. Antoinette. Marie Antoinette, which is mm. incredible. Yeah, yeah. That, it could have really have gone in that direction in in terms of engaging in that kind of teen romance vibe. Uh, it really could have gone somewhere interesting. Even that punk rock feel of that film. Yeah, that was well. yeah, that was wonderful. The way yeah. that she kind of played with you know Susie and the Banshees and the soundtrack and the and colors. It was just great. And the mm. Mm. Yeah, really vibrant. And this was totally dull. And they were all every every male in this film. It was so annoying. Mm. Yes. <laughs> one-dimensional prick, yeah, every like, single one It's of them. like very, that exactly what you would expect, a pompous, annoying man. Yeah. But, you and, know. And, which, and, and Maisie Williams, she can't act. <laughs> Just, like, I mean, she was great as Aya in Game of Thrones, but everything I've seen her in since is... But this is it. The, yeah. Yeah. That's it. And this is hardly any sort of star part either. Like, I, until you mentioned her name, I'd forgotten she was in it. Yeah, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. I was like, which one? Well, on, on that good note, <laughs> Mary Shelley is screening now at all good independent cinemas. So you've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Stuart Richards, Paul Anthony Nelson, Flick Ford and myself, Sally Christie. Uh, other than Mary Shelley, on tonight's show we discussed Jill Billcock dancing The Invisible and Best Friends, which are both showing exclusively to Cinema Nova. Um, you can subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. And a huge thanks to Faith Everard for editing the podcast and Carl Chapman for panelling the show tonight. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.